Kyburn Place. Welcome to this edition of Still in the Race, a podcast about running, except for when it's not. A life in transition, beating the storm. It was one of those days when I had to run, not because of what was on schedule or some deep inner need, but rather what was on Mother Nature's schedule. Up to a foot of snow with 45 mile an hour gusts were in the forecast. That was followed by a solid week of single digit temperatures and negative wind chills. It was complicated by our impending move, where the conditions of sidewalks and trails in the dead of winter were still a mystery at our new location. The remaining time before the storm rolled in would likely be my last time outside for some time. The wind was starting to pick up, and darkness was little more than a half hour away, so I set off for a quick three miles. I would head south after crossing the river, passing the performance hall before turning up Monroe Center in front of the Rosa Park Circle and the Grand Rapids Art Museum. Climbing the hill past all the small shops in that neighborhood, I would wrap around the police station before beginning the process of picking my way back home. The city had that vibe of everyone cramming in one last stop before the snow brought everything to a halt. I planned on signing up for a few of the many races with paths throughout the city, but I was aware that this would likely be my last downtown run as a resident. I wanted to slow down and take it all in, but I was surrounded by rush hour traffic, and the darkness was settling in more rapidly than I had planned on. It was hard to enjoy. I pushed through the run, the final leg crossing the Pebble Bridge, and then turning in front of the Gerald R. Ford Museum, which led to my front door. It didn't fit into my romantic vision of my final run, but the winds were picking up, snow was in the air, and the streetlights were coming to life. It felt the same as so many times before, yet I was aware that it was the end of an era as I climbed the steps and opened the giant glass doors into the foyer. Baby Fever I was recently interviewed by my son and daughter-in-law for the podcast babyfeverpodcast.com and we talked about my parenting influences. In my case, it was my parents. No one else is even in the conversation. Over the following weeks, it did, however, keep coming back around to me and I found myself considering who else had influenced my life. Even though I have embarked on a year-long journey built around running, it took far too long to circle back to Coach Foley. He introduced me to running in my teenage years, and we would cross paths many times across the decades. It's 45 years later, and as I reflect on those early days, the interest that he showed in me that spring continues to follow my entire family. The Beginning I began running in high school more due to pressure from coaches rather than any burning desire to run competitively. The track coach showed up in one of my classes, pulled me aside, and claimed that my basketball coach told him that he can run forever, and I belonged on the track team. He was selling, but even at that moment of being built up, I suspected that the conversation was more along the lines of, he's not much of a basketball player, but he can run forever. 
which was fair. The problem was that I didn't particularly enjoy running. The only reason that my endurance stood out was that I had a basketball coach that looked around the gym and realized that we weren't going to win many games because of talent. We were going to need to outwork our opponents. When I evaluated my place on the team, I realized that I needed to be in the best shape on a marginal team because from my vantage point, that was the only way I was going to see the court. On a team that needed to overachieve, I needed to be an overachiever. Eventually, spring rolled around, basketball season ended, and my ego went out based on the possibility that I might actually be good at something. I can still remember the first practice. The head coach pulled a small group of newbies aside and gave us instructions. Run to the end of the road until it dead ends. Turn left and run to the stop sign. Turn right to the end of that road. Then turn around and come back. It wasn't until later that I learned it was the first practice for everyone in that group. And the run was nothing more than to see who had quit after the first day so the coach didn't have to waste any of his time. Even after all the hours running in the gym, being out on the road was a terrible experience. I quickly moved to the front of the pack and refused to surrender the lead through the first two turns. Then, one by one, I felt our group getting smaller and smaller until I only detected one person behind me. At the turnaround point, I could see that I had created enough of a gap that it would be a challenge to catch me, and I settled into a pace that I could sustain back to the school. I also quickly learned what happened to the rest of the pack. Several were walking, a few more had just disappeared. If coach intended to thin the ranks on the first day of practice, he was off to a good start. By the time I rounded the last corner and had the school in my sights, everything hurt. We ran for two hours every night at basketball practice, but this was different. My lower back was screaming, and as I attempted to speed up for the last hundred yards, I was gasping for breath. It was terrible. I never wanted to do it again. I couldn't understand why anyone would. I had been gone less than 20 minutes. As I ran through the gate and back into the track area, the coach gave me a nod and then turned away. I had survived day one, but his body language clearly communicated that the test wasn't over. The next day, the four of us that returned went out and did the same run. Three of us finished. The next day, two of us showed up, and for the first time, were allowed to join the rest of the team, who all seemed to know what was expected of them. It was at that point that I was handed over to Coach Foley and the distance team. I just hoped that it didn't involve running, which seemed unlikely based on it being track practice. I can honestly say that I hated every practice that year. The meets were worse. My first race was on a bitterly cold day, and being my first race, I arrived with no hat or gloves. I put an old pair of socks over my hands and took my place at the starting line of the 880, which dates me. I was excited. Turns out I was too excited. I had no experience, so I jumped out to an early lead on the first lap, regardless that my teammate was the returning conference champion, and then slowly surrendered the lead back to him during the second lap. I had gone out too fast, and as I crossed the finish line in second place, I staggered onto the football field and proceeded to throw up. I hated running. I couldn't wait for the season to be over so that I could quit running forever. The problem was, I had met Coach Foley, and although he would never turn me into a great runner, he taught me to tolerate and then eventually appreciate running and the peace that I would find there. Ultimately, it would put me on a journey that has lasted a lifetime. Years later, I would watch as he coached two of my children. My wife unexpectedly started signing up for races, and my youngest, the only one not to run in high school, became the most avid of us all. It's possible that we would have found this place without him, 
but no one that ever met Coach Foley would believe that. And neither do I. Day one. I laced up my shoes and headed out for a run from our new house for the first time. I had a general idea of what direction I wanted to go, but the first trip was more about exploring my options and distances to specific landmarks that I had mapped out in my mind. It was cold enough to warm my warmest coat, but warm enough to wear a baseball hat. There was a soft breeze, and the sun made it feel warmer than the thermostat red. I had already taken note that we were living at the crest of several rolling hills, and as I set out, I found myself evaluating the degree of difficulty that I would encounter on the return trip. It's one of the problems with hills. Running up an incline is much steeper than when running down the same elevation. From a physics perspective, I realized that's impossible. But with decades of running experience, my body tells me different. Clearly, the finishing stretch was going to be a challenge. The subdivision entrance was a little over a quarter of a mile from our home, and I crossed the road to a completely clear sidewalk that a week earlier would have required spikes to navigate the ice and snow. As I set off, I noted a couple of small subdivisions that I would need to explore over the next few weeks and continued to wind along the road. I was moving away from civilization and had only been in that direction a couple of times since we started the moving process. I was aware that there was a long hill to the east, but as I rounded the corner and had full view, I was surprised how steep and long it was. My GPS would reveal that it was nearly three-quarters of a mile long, but at that moment, all I could think about was a return trip. It was going to be brutal. On the way down, I moved at a pace of a decade earlier, aware that when I faced the wrong side of the hill, I would be moving at the speed of the decade yet to come. Reality always shows up at some point during a run. I knew that I should be pushing harder on the way down to make up time, but I still hadn't decided how far I was going to go on my inaugural journey, and locked into a comfortable pace. The trip home lived up to my expectations. Uphill was much steeper and longer than the downhill, once again confirming my experience that defied physics. It had been before Christmas since my last hill workout, and halfway up, that became obvious. My head was down, and I was forced to concentrate on small goals. Keep the pace to the dark spot in the sidewalk. Make it to the curve. Hold on until the driveway. The hill was an impossible challenge, but I could piece together 20 small runs and make it to the top. Turning into our development, the incline was soft at first, then gradually became more aggressive. I could now see that every run would end with a challenge. It's the price one pays for living at the high point. I shut down my app and slowed to a trot as I neared the driveway. When I stopped at the mailbox, I discovered how exhausted I was from that first run. I had pulled up one house short and was now flipping through the neighbor's mail. As inconspicuously as possible, I put the mail back in and ended my first exploration. Run number one was in the books. The ultimate treadmill workout. I have noted several times that I am no fan of treadmills, but through the many winter months across the years, I have managed some good workouts. However, never a great one. At least until last week, when I came away dripping with sweat and completely exhausted. What made it even more surprising was that I managed to do it without running a single step. Rather, it was bad planning and overestimating my capabilities. I had been tracking the delivery of my latest package for over a week. Leaving a downstairs gym behind when we moved from downtown, I realized that investing in some home equipment 
was just one more expense that came with suburbia. I should have become suspicious when the package required a freight company's delivery time, but I remained blissfully naive until the day that it arrived. When I pulled into the driveway that evening, the new treadmill was waiting in the garage. As reality came into view, I could feel the excitement of preparing for an evening run being sucked from my plans. My new challenge was that I had bought it online where everything looks precisely the way that we wanted to. It was four inches tall on my screen and looked exactly like I imagined that it would in my basement. The problem was that my easily movable treadmill was more akin to a commercial model and came in at 300 pounds, which I now had to find a way to get into the house and down to the lower level. Being a male, the first thing I did was try and move it. Yep, 300 pounds confirmed. I tried a second time. My wife joined me in the garage and the two of us stood looking at it together. Fortunately for me, she brings a lot of toughness and tenacity in a small package. Our only chance was to slide it around to the front of the house so that we could get a straight shot into the foyer. The challenge kept growing as we struggled to tip the box up on its side and drag it out of the garage and up to the front walk. We wrestled with the package, moving it a few inches at a time, fighting to keep it from toppling back over. Once we finally arrived at the first step, the real work started. After a few tries, it became apparent that we weren't going to be able to lift it onto the first step. I grabbed a shovel out of the garage that we could use for leverage, and eventually we raised the box to the front edge of the step. We labored to shove it as far forward as possible, and then had to reset the shovel along with several other yard implements, finally managing to reach the lip of the second step. The problem now was that we had to lift the box with the fulcrum only inches from the end, which meant the entire 300 pounds and one person had to battle keeping the package upright, making it impossible for us to attack together. Our unlikely rescuer came in the form of the first neighbor that we met after moving there. At 77 years old, Mike shuffled across the street and introduced himself as he lent a hand. I was worried that he might get hurt, because I realized that the entire undertaking was only marginally safe. But the truth is, the treadmill would have never made it inside without his help. Once inside, things got a lot easier as we slid it across the wood floor to the top of the stairs. The next leg of the journey was to lower it to the landing, turn 180 degrees, and then proceed to the lower level. As we perched it on top of the steps, my question wasn't if we could slide it down. It was could we stop it from slamming into the wall below, or more concerning, me. We slid it to the midpoint, where there was a brief moment when I assured myself that there was a 51% chance that it was safe. My wife was 100% sure that I was being foolish. We tipped it down the stairs. Bracing against the wall for the first time since beginning, everything went according to plan. One quick turn and we would be down the last flight, mission accomplished. Except, at that point, physics reared its ugly head. The box was too wide and too tall to make the transition. After living in denial and trying every angle, we began the process of trying to cut the treadmill out of the box on the landing where there was barely any room to move. I tore from the bottom and my wife cut from the upper level for nearly 20 minutes as we struggled to free it, hoping that we would gain those precious few inches that we needed to allow the box to slide down. In the end, we won the day, but by the time we were done assembling our overly elaborate treadmill, nearly two hours had passed and my shirt was wet with sweat and I was far too tired to lace up for a run. The following day, I climbed out of bed with stiff legs and an aching back, feeling like I had worked out with an angry trainer. 
In the years ahead, I expect that I will find my workouts on my latest investment both tedious and frustrating. But on that first day, by a wide margin, it was my best treadmill workout ever. More importantly, I decided that if we ever move again, part of the deal will be that treadmill remains behind. Thanks for stopping by this edition of Still in the Race. If you would rather read much of the content, along with other odd thoughts and observations, find their way to stillintherace.com. Production and editing, care of Trey Jones. You can find him at treyjoneswriter.com. Additional editing and artwork, Astrid Burke. You can find them both at babyfeverpodcast.com. I look forward to next time when I hope to have something to say. But don't count on it.